Section 25 of Whom We Shall Welcome. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Patrick McAfee, Evanston. Whom We Shall Welcome. Report of the President's Commission on Immigration and Naturalization. Part 5. Chapter 14. Relief in Deportation Cases. Deportation orders frequently affect many people in addition to those against whom action is taken. The alien's spouse and children, often citizens, are linked with the destiny of the deportee. The hardships caused in many cases by such an order have prompted measures for discretionary relief, some by statute and some by administrative regulation or practice. The provisions for relief were well defined prior to the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1952. Although in many aspects they were not entirely adequate, in general they appeared to be reasonably satisfactory. The Act of 1952 restricted or eliminated practically every provision for discretionary relief. General deportation statutes cannot deal justly in every situation, and the Commission believes that a sound immigration law should continue to authorize the alleviation of excessive hardships in individual worthy cases. Three principal discretionary remedies existed prior to the Act of 1952. One, voluntary departure. Two, pre-examination. And three, suspension of deportation. In addition to these administrative remedies, there was a fourth one of a legislative character, the growing practice of introducing in Congress private relief bills to forestall deportation. Voluntary Departure In many instances, a person may be deportable for reasons which impute no personal blame. For instance, a temporary visitor may be prevented from or delayed in leaving the United States by causes beyond his control. A seaman discharged at an American port may be unable to find a new ship within the period of shore leave allotted to him. A student may be financially or physically unable to continue his studies. A diplomatic official may resign because his new home government is unfriendly to him and us. He may even be a defector from communism. In recent years, many persons in a temporary status in the United States have been unable to return to their home countries which have fallen under communist control. In other instances, personal fault is slight or difficult to assess. Some aliens who have come into the country for pleasure or business may have wittingly or unwittingly failed to comply with the laws pertaining to entry. In all such cases, the aliens are subject to deportation. Until 1940, there was no specific statutory authorization to do anything but to deport such people. However, deportation involves a personal stigma, 
and a person deported from the United States commits a crime if he re-enters without the specific permission of the Attorney General. To avoid such situations to the extent desirable, and to save the government the trouble and expense of deportation, the discretionary remedy of voluntary departure was devised by administrative officials. The discretionary remedy of voluntary departure is merely permission to the deportable alien to leave the United States within an allotted time and without a deportation order. Voluntary departure serves the needs of the government and of the alien in meritorious cases. The Alien Registration Act of 1940 required an alien to prove that he was a person of good moral character for five years before he could be allowed voluntary departure. It precluded the granting of such relief to persons deportable for various violations of law relating to subversives, criminals, prostitutes, and narcotics. Although the Act of 1952 adopts the rule of the 1940 Act, it gives unrestricted administrative authority to grant voluntary departure before deportation proceedings have been started. However, the Act of 1952 in effect limits the opportunities for granting this relief through an unreal definition of good moral character, which is discussed more fully in relation to suspension of deportation and to deportation. The expedient of voluntary departure has been widely used. The large volume of illegal entries of Mexican agricultural laborers across the southern border of the United States has created a need for flexibility. It would be difficult and expensive to ascertain whether each such illegal entrant possessed particular qualifications before he could be permitted to depart from the United States. Deportation hearings are expensive for the government and burdensome upon the alien. Moreover, the expulsion of the alien entails large costs which are avoided if the alien is permitted to depart at his own expense. The Commission recommends that administrative officials should have authority to permit aliens who are illegally in the United States to depart at their own expense. The conditions and circumstances under which that privilege is granted should be left to the sound discretion of the administrative officers without the unnecessary limitations now found in the statute. Pre-examination. In many instances, persons in a temporary or irregular status desire to establish permanent residence and are otherwise eligible to do so. Since under the immigration law, consuls are not authorized to issue immigration visas in the United States, an alien desiring adjustment of status to permanent residence was required to return to his country of origin for such visa. This was an expensive procedure which served no useful purpose either for the alien or for the United States. To meet this situation, the administrative authorities in 1935 
devised a process known as pre-examination. An arrangement was made with Canada under which aliens who had been authorized such pre-examination in the United States could enter Canada to obtain an immigration visa at any American consulate in that country for the purpose of re-entering the United States immediately as an immigrant. The United States guaranteed to Canada that it would permit the immediate re-entry of such aliens. Pre-examination consisted merely in examining a prospective immigrant in the United States to determine his admissibility. Under this procedure, an alien took a short trip to Canada instead of a long and expensive trip to his home country. Pre-examination depended entirely on administrative regulations and practices. It was often coupled with an authorization for voluntary departure. Under the established procedure, an alien was not allowed pre-examination unless he demonstrated to the immigration authorities that an immigration visa was immediately available, which means that for a quota immigrant, a quota number must be currently available and that he was otherwise admissible under the immigration laws. An alien granted pre-examination could complete all his preliminary arrangements by mail. Usually, after receiving an appointment from a United States consul in Canada, he could enter Canada, apply for and secure his visa, and re-enter without being outside the United States for more than a day or two. Pre-examination did not eliminate the usual checks and procedures in issuing visas. No persuasive evidence seems to have been presented to justify a contrary view. In any event, any loopholes or other difficulties could have been remedied by the administrative authorities. The following are typical cases in which the privilege of pre-examination was authorized. Case 1. The alien, a Norwegian, was admitted to transit in 1942 with other survivors of a torpedoed vessel on which he had been chief engineer. Because of unfitness for sea duty, he remained ashore. He became the president of a ship cleaning company which performed war work. He was eligible to first priority for a non-preference quota visa because of his services at sea during the early days of the war. He was allowed voluntary departure and pre-examination so that he could go to Canada and apply for his visa instead of returning to Norway. Case 2. The alien became a citizen in 1926. He returned to Italy in 1930 and resided there until 1946, at which time he re-entered the United States as a citizen. Unknown to him, his naturalization had been canceled in 1935. It was concluded that he had obtained an American passport and re-entered the United States in good faith. Under the circumstances, the application was found exceptionally meritorious and pre-examination was authorized so that he could enter Canada and obtain his visa instead of returning to Italy to obtain it. Case 3. 
The alien, a 29-year-old native and citizen of the Republic of the Philippines, last entered the United States as a seaman on January 5, 1947. He intended to remain permanently, but had none of the necessary immigration documents. He had enlisted in the Army of the United States in Australia in 1942 and served until his honorable discharge in 1945. He is the holder of five decorations. His good moral character for a five-year period was established by the record. He was eligible for the issuance of a first-priority non-preference quota visa. By reason of his war service, his case was found to be exceptionally meritorious. He was granted the privilege of voluntary departure and pre-examination so that he could go to Canada to apply for his visa instead of returning to the Philippines. During 1951, out of a total of 1,945 new applications for pre-examination, which were filed by aliens not subject to deportation proceedings, 1,201 were approved and 156 denied. 30 pre-examinations were revoked. Effect of 1952 Act Although the Act of 1952 did not in express terms abolish the practice of pre-examination, the Congressional Conference Committee stated that it contained a prohibition against pre-examination. The regulations issued by the Immigration and Naturalization Service adopt the conclusions suggested by the conferees and, in effect, abolish pre-examination. The theory of this action, as explained in the conference report, was, quote, that the pre-examination system was cumbersome, obsolete, and, as practiced, contained certain loopholes for the admission for permanent residents of undesirable aliens, end quote. The pre-examination procedure was generally believed to be reasonably adequate. It seems somewhat strange that criticism of the procedure of pre-examination should have been based, as the Commission is informed, on opinions expressed by the administrative officers who devised and operated it, and who had ample authority to plug any loopholes in it, and otherwise make it conform to proper practice. Congress, in eliminating pre-examination, did not supply a satisfactory substitute. It introduced a new procedure called Adjustment of Status of Non-Immigrant. In one important respect, this seems an improvement over former practices, since it allows adjustment of status in the United States without requiring a trip to Canada. But the Act of 1952 surrounds the new procedure with conditions and limitations which apparently permit only a few to qualify and which therefore may be self-defeating. For example, this new adjustment of status may be granted only to an alien lawfully admitted as a non-immigrant 
or temporary visitor and who is continuing to maintain that status. By denying adjustment to otherwise admissible aliens whose present status is irregular for one or another reason, the new procedure loses one of the major benefits in the old system of pre-examination. The only avenue provided for the great number who cannot meet such rigidly limited conditions is suspension of deportation, but this requires a finding that they are deportable and the procedure is slow, cumbersome, and expensive. In fact, in most such cases arising under the 1952 Act, an alien who resides in the United States and who would be qualified immediately to immigrate to the United States if he lived overseas must again make the long and expensive trip to his homeland in order to obtain a visa and return. The Commission recommends that an alien in the United States in a temporary or irregular status be given the privilege of having his status adjusted to that of a lawful permanent resident without being required to leave the United States if he is currently qualified to enter the United States under the immigration laws. This will entail mental and physical examination, security clearance, and satisfaction of all qualitative requirements, as well as the present availability of a quota number when it is required. The presence of such an alien in the United States should not give him any preference or advantage over prospective immigrants in foreign countries. Suspension of Deportation Congress has provided that hardships created by the inflexible provisions for deportation may be avoided through a procedure known as suspension of deportation. Most of the aliens who become legal residents follow the usual course of obtaining immigration visas abroad. For example, in the fiscal year 1951, 156,547 quota immigrants were admitted from abroad. Only 1,506 aliens became legal residents through suspension of deportation, and charges were made against the proper quotas. During 1950, the respective figures were 197,460 and 833. After thorough consideration of the problem during several sessions of Congress beginning in 1934, the discretionary power to suspend deportation was finally enacted in the Alien Registration Act of 1940. The Attorney General was authorized to suspend deportation of a deportable alien who had proved good moral character for the past five years if deportation would result in serious economic detriment to the alien's citizen or legally resident spouse, parent, or child. This consideration was denied to aliens deportable as subversives criminals, prostitutes, the mentally and physically deficient, 
and aliens racially ineligible for naturalization. In each instance where deportation was suspended, a quota number was deducted from the current quota of the alien's home country. The Alien Registration Act of 1940 required that each case be reported to Congress and suspension of deportation became final unless, by concurrent resolution, Congress disapproved. Amendments in 1948 enlarged the suspension authority, but also introduced some restrictive features. A deportable alien who had resided here for seven years was made eligible, even though he did not have the specified family ties. But this provision was limited to aliens who were in the United States in 1948. The amendments also removed the previous bar on aliens racially ineligible for citizenship. But instead of the previous requirement that suspensions of deportation were final unless the Congress passed a concurrent disapproving resolution, the Act of 1948 made them final only if Congress passed a concurrent resolution affirmatively approving them. Effect of Act of 1952 The Act of 1952 severely limits the authority to grant suspensions of deportation, although it makes such relief available to groups previously ineligible for it. In place of the relatively simple previous procedure, the Act of 1952 substitutes an involved statutory scheme. In order to be eligible for suspension of deportation prior to the Act of 1952, an alien had to show serious economic detriment to specified close relatives unless he had resided here for seven years. The Act of 1952 requires that the alien must be, quote, a person whose deportation would, in the opinion of the Attorney General, result in exceptional and extremely unusual hardship, end quote, to the alien or to the specified relatives. The Senate Committee Report makes it clear that the remedy, quote, should be available only in the very limited category of cases in which the deportation of the alien would be unconscionable. Hardship or even unusual hardship to the alien or to his spouse, parent, or child is not sufficient to justify suspension of deportation. End quote. In commenting on this new language and the committee's explanation, one distinguished witness testifying at the commission's hearing said, quote, Rarely has there been a balder statement of a national purpose to be cruel. End quote. Even the technical experts have difficulty arriving at an understanding of the provisions of the Act of 1952 relating to suspension of deportation. The Act establishes five classes of aliens eligible for suspension of deportation and prescribes for each such class 
a continuous period of physical presence in the United States, up to the date of application for suspension. The shortest period for which the alien must have continuously been physically present is five years. The longest is ten years. The ten-year period indiscriminately covers subversives, criminals, and prostitutes on the one hand, and persons who merely violated purely technical provisions of the law on the other hand. Prior to the 1952 Act, an alien who supported his American citizen wife could have obtained suspension of deportation no matter how short his stay in this country had been. The new Act requires five, seven, or ten years of continuous, quote, physical presence, end quote. The alien must prove that he has been a person of good moral character during the entire period. The new law contains a highly restrictive definition of good moral character, creating many uncertainties. For example, the Immigration and Naturalization Service testified at the Commission's hearings that the crime of adultery was inadequately defined in the Act of 1952. Except for persons who came to the United States before June 27, 1950, an alien may not be granted suspension if a final order of deportation has been entered in his case. This subjects the alien to the arbitrary requirement that the date of an order of deportation controls his right to be considered for suspension of deportation. Often, an alien who does not qualify for suspension of deportation under the Act of 1952 will be able to return almost at once as a permanent legal resident of this country. Under other provisions of the law, he may be entitled to a preferred immigration status for visa consideration by reason of his citizen or legally resident wife or children. In other cases, for lack of the remedy of suspension, the alien may suffer the disruption of his family. Many witnesses criticized the restrictions on the authority to deal with hardships imposed by the Act of 1952 as being repugnant to American principles of justice and humanity. Among them was the late Philip Murray, representing the Congress of Industrial Organizations, CIO, who stated, quote, that the authorities administering the law should have sufficient discretion to enable them to take humanitarian considerations into account. These resident aliens about whom we are talking may have lived in this country for years, may have married spouses who are American citizens, and may have children who are American citizens. Deportation of the alien may mean intolerable hardship for the family. The officials enforcing the laws should therefore have authority to look at the whole picture and decide whether, in the light of all the circumstances, the national interest will or will not be served by deportation of an individual.
the laws should be administered in a liberal and humanitarian rather than a technical and punitive spirit. End quote. The Commission believes that the statutory requirement for congressional approval of suspension of deportation actions is contrary to our fundamental constitutional doctrine of separation of legislative, executive, and judicial powers. The basic concept of our American system is that the Congress makes the laws, the executive administers them, and the judiciary interprets them. Our form of government is built upon a tripartite system of checks and balances, intended to assure that no one branch of government encroach upon any of the others. The failure of the Congress to follow the constitutional pattern is obstructive of good government and destructive of fundamental principles. In immigration matters, in particular, it frustrates proper administration and puts a premium on extraneous considerations in the determination of legal rights. The exercise of discretion according to standards fixed by Congress is peculiarly an executive function. The legislature is not equipped and not intended to be equipped to handle the details of administration. The provision for legislative approval of determinations in individual cases requires an administrative agency within the legislature itself attempting to redo what the administrative agency has already done, but without the safeguards which the Congress and the courts have insisted shall surround administrative action. This is wrong in principle and bad in practice. It is no more the function of Congress to pass upon individual cases involving suspension of deportation than it would be to pass upon the issuance of individual visas, or for that matter, upon the custom inspection of an individual alien's baggage. One searches in vain for a comparable example of intermingling of executive and legislative authority. The determination of the existence and extent of tremendous human and property rights is confided to the discretion of executive officials. For example, the Selective Service System periodically drafts tens of thousands of the youth of America into the armed forces, including aliens, without submitting all the individual cases to Congress for its approval. The Atomic Energy Commission has virtually unlimited discretion in effecting a crucial program affecting our survival. The Interior Department has large discretion in regulating the affairs of Indians. The Veterans Administration functions in many fields affecting veterans. The Mutual Security Agency and the Reconstruction Financing Corporation are empowered to allocate billions of dollars. The Interstate Commerce Commission, Federal Communications Commission, Civil Aeronautics Board, and Federal Power Commission have power to grant invaluable franchises and to fix rates affecting millions of people. And even the immigration laws themselves 
grant broad discretion in some respects to administrative officers to enforce restrictive requirements. Yet the Attorney General cannot suspend the deportation of one alien without reporting the case to Congress and obtaining its approval. The Commission recommends that any alien in the United States in irregular status who does not qualify for adjustment of status, as above described, may be granted suspension of deportation in the discretion of the administrative officer upon a showing of good moral character for five years, and a serious economic detriment to the alien's citizen or legally resident spouse, parent, or minor child, or b residents in the United States for seven years. These recommendations would restore the provisions for suspension of deportation substantially to their position prior to the Act of 1952. The Act of 1952 authorizes suspension of deportation for former subversives, criminals, and other groups previously denied this remedy. This authority should be continued subject to a limitation that such aliens must have resided in the United States for 10 years. The Commission recommends that administrative officials be given authority to exercise reasonable discretion to suspend deportation without the necessity for congressional action in individual cases. Special Legislation Another consequence of the inflexibility of the immigration laws is the enactment by Congress of private relief bills exempting named individuals from particular restrictive provisions. Until the past decade or so, private relief bills in immigration matters were virtually unknown. But during recent years, Congress has been deluged with an increasing flood of such bills. Thus, while only 163 private bills in immigration and nationality cases were introduced in the 78th Congress, there were 429 in the 79th Congress, 1,141 in the 80th Congress, 2,811 in the 81st Congress, and 3,669 in the 82nd Congress. The number of private bills has been a heavy burden on Congress. Moreover, it has added substantially to the problems of administration. In most instances, the introduction of such a bill has been followed by a request from a committee of Congress to the Department of Justice for an investigation of the facts and a report. Under arrangements between the Department of Justice and committees of Congress, deportation frequently has been withheld while a private bill is pending. The result is that the private bill device has afforded an opportunity to delay or defeat deportation and has overburdened Congress and the administrative authorities. The sponsors of the Act of 1952 have stated that its enactment would substantially diminish the volume of such bills. But others predict a different result in view of the many oppressive features of that legislation, 
including the severe limitations on the discretionary relief of adjustment of status and suspension of deportation. The increase in the number of private immigration bills introduced into and passed by the Congress is itself evidence that something is wrong with our immigration laws. The Commission believes that the unnecessary hardships which private bills seek to correct would better and more fairly be corrected by enactment of a reasonable immigration law, including adequate discretionary authority vested in responsible administrative officials. End of section 25. Recording by Patrick McAfee, Evanston.